0: pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus, and we thank you uh, for the promises of Christmas. Uh, I pray that we would uh, celebrate and remember and uh, be filled uh, by the story of your son Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. A couple of uh, Thanksgivings ago, uh, we were visiting my sister in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And uh, the day we were going to leave, uh, the day before they had been forecasting about four to five inches of snow, which uh, in the Upper Peninsula, they're just really good at snow. Uh, they get a lot of it. They know how to clear it. Uh, I think the last couple years uh, for the year, they've averaged about 200 inches of snow um, over the course. And I said, man, there'd be like mass depression indicator <laughs> if we even one time had 200 inches of snow in, in, a, in a year. And uh, so four to five inches of snow was not going to be a big deal. They were going to clear it. We were going to be able to leave, keep our reservations and all of that. Well, something happened that only God knows. And that storm front got stuck over the upper peninsula. All right. The Great Lakes are up there. This happens sometimes. And what ended up happening instead is over the course of about 15 hours, it dumped over 20 inches of snow. Uh, I have never seen it snow that way before, and I am from Michigan. Uh, and on one hand, it was beautiful because it just blanketed the entire landscape with snow. I mean, uh, it, it was really beautiful on uh, one hand. On another hand, as you might imagine, it was really quite frustrating Uh, because we had reservations we were supposed to keep. We were scheduled to leave uh, that day, and all of it was happening. And even in the upper peninsula of Michigan, when it drops 20 inches of snow over the course of 15 hours, you're not going anywhere, right? You're you're just staying put. It was too much, and it was too deep to travel. And we've been in this series uh, called Christmas All Around Us, where we're looking at different aspects of Christmas from around the world. We looked at uh, the Philippines. Uh, Last Sunday, we looked at uh, Japan, for Christmas Eve coming up, we're going to be looking at Bethlehem. Uh, but today, uh, we want to focus on home, the Midwest. And, and one of the dominant scenes of Christmas when it comes to the Midwest, we're going to be deprived this year, but one of the dominant scenes when it comes to the Midwest is that of the snow-covered house, right? The, the snow in the front lawn, just a warm, kind of beautiful blanket of snow. And I've lived in the Midwest my entire life, and what I have found living here is that people long for snow until December 25th. On December 26th, something happens and people long to, they begin to hate snow uh, and they begin to pray uh, against it. So right up until the 25th, we're like, God, all I want is a white Christmas. All I want, want is a white Christmas. And then starting like the 26th, there's snow in the forecast and people are like, what in the world, God? What are you doing? It's like, well, you live in Illinois. So let's just dial it back a little bit, right? Um, you, you live in Illinois, there's going to be snow. And so today we want to, we're, we're, we're going to have a green Christmas, right? So you can't hold any snow that, that comes against me because that's not going to happen. Um, last time I preached on snow, we ended up with a major snowstorm and instead of Christmas cards, I got hate mail, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, how dare you bring snow upon us? I don't have that authority. All right. Just to, I'm pastoral, but I don't have that authority to bring snow. So we're going to talk about snow today and what it teaches us about God and how it ties into the Christmas story. So we're going to kind of be in Job 37 eventually. Job is not a traditional Christmas story. All right. Uh, and, and so we, we are going uh, to get there, but I want to kind of beg your indulgence for a minute, uh, uh, for about 10 minutes. Um, if you will give me 10 minutes Uh, I want to lay the groundwork of Job because I think this text we're going to look at is really powerful when it comes to Christmas. Uh, And I want to lay the context of Job. uh, And I I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, we are going to get to Christmas. Uh, But allow me to start with Job. Job, a lot of people believe that Job is actually the oldest story in your Bible that Job kind of predates even the writing of Genesis, that it is the oldest story in, in human history. And it starts, Job starts with a comment about the man Job himself. And here's what it says about Job. Job was a man who was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. All right. So that's kind of, we get the landscape of Job right from the beginning, that this was a good dude. This was a good guy. He had 10 children. He was extremely wealthy. The text says that he was the greatest man among the people uh, of the East. And there comes a time in the story where the angels begin to present themselves to God and, and Satan ends up coming in. and He also presents himself to God and they begin a conversation about Job. And God is commending Job's faithfulness. He's like, he's upright, he's righteous, he's a good man, he's full of integrity. And Satan says to God, well, listen, you've been pretty good to Job, right? And, and his faithfulness is maybe tied To how good you've been to him. I bet if you weren't so good to Job, I bet if he wasn't so blessed, he wouldn't be so faithful. And so God allows Satan to touch anything that Job has except for Job himself. He keeps Job off limits. And over the next several verses, uh, it is not a great Christmas story. It is heartbreaking. Um, His children are killed. His riches are taken away. He literally loses everything. And verse 20 of chapter 1. So this is just like 20 verses into the first chapter. Is Job's Uh, full of integrity. He's righteous. He's upright. He's prosperous. And then by verse 20, he loses everything. And it says this, at this time, Job got up, he tore his robe, he shaved his head. And here's a couple of the great verses of the Bible. And then he fell to the ground and he worshiped. Verse 22 says this, and all this Job did not sin by charging God with any wrongdoing. And the story continues that Satan again approaches God and comes to him. And they have a similar conversation about Job, about how uh, righteous and upright and good he is. God says, there's no one like him on the earth. And Satan retorts, well, the only reason he's this way is that, yeah, you allowed me to take some stuff from him. But you have spared his health. And so God allows Satan to inflict suffering on Job directly. Tells him, you can't kill him, but you can inflict suffering on him. Uh, And Job ends up with these painful sores all over his body. And we're given this image of Job that Job took a piece of pottery and he scraped himself just to get relief from the boils. Now, this is the part of the story where other people begin to enter the story. So you get, you get introduced to Job's wife and Job's wife comes to him. She sees everything that has happened and she comes in in verse nine. She says, Job, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Beautiful Christmas card, by the way. You really ought to consider sending that one this year. Are you still maintaining your integrity? No, no, right? And she uses this interesting kind of phrasing uh, in in the text when she says curse. It's a Hebrew word, uh, um, Barak, and depending on how you translate it, it can mean to curse, but it can also mean to bend the knee, to bow, and to worship. And so I don't know if Job's wife intended to, to communicate this or not, but the very way she says, curse God and die, she seems to be indicating, Job, you're at a crossroads. Are you gonna curse God or are you gonna remain faithful and give him honor and glory and praise? Have you ever felt like you're at a crossroads like that? Where things have gotten hard enough and discouraging enough and difficult enough that you feel like you're almost at a crossroads with God. Will I worship or will I walk? Maybe you felt that way even this year as we've had trial after trial after trial and your faithfulness has been tested. I've seen people all over the map on this. I remember a guy in a church, a previous church that I served, um, his mom uh, passed away and he was so kind of wrecked by that death that he ended up declaring to his wife one day that he was now an atheist and, and just kind of left everything behind him. He, he gave up on everything because he was so angry with God that his mother had died. And I also remember sitting in this church one Sunday, about five days after brain surgery, a young 15-year-old kid walked into this very room and lifted his hands in worship. What causes people to choose worship over walk? This is my observation, and I think it's what the story of Job is all about, is that are you going, it's the question, are you going to focus on the magnitude of the suffering or are you going to focus on the size of your God? That's the question of Job, and I think it's the question of 2021. Are you going to focus on the magnitude of the suffering, or are you going to focus on the size of your God? And I've seen it again and again. When people can focus their heart and their mind in difficult times on God, their problems become smaller in comparison to their great God, but also God begins to infuse in them a joy, hope, and peace that they didn't even know was possible because they have come to him. Man, I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like the last couple of years have been rough. And I don't know about you, if you're watching the news, it feels like it's about to get kind of rough again. And I feel like when you hop on your news site or you turn on the TV, the problems are present, aren't they? They're big. They're with us. And I wonder what would happen this Christmas if we made God more present. If we made his gospel the headline, his joy, hope, and peace bigger. I want you to hold on to that. I want you to hold on to that just for a minute because then we're introduced to the friends now, all right? Uh, his wife comes in and then these three friends come. And honestly, if you have a friend going through a difficult time, these friends put on a clinic for how you handle someone in suffering. Here's what it says. At first they do anyway. When Job's three friends, Eliephaz the Temanite, uh, Badad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namath- Namathite, this is why I get paid, right? For... Name pronunciation, all right? They heard about the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him at a distance, they could hardly even recognize him, and they began to weep out loud. They tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads, and then here it is. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. This is a clinic on how you help a friend going through a difficult time. Go see them. Don't say a word. Don't say a word. Hug, sympathize, sit. And they did it for seven days. And on seven days, they kind of got this scratch that they had to itch. And they said, the thing Job needs most is an answer as to why. This is a question I've heard 2020, 2020. I've heard this question asked a thousand times. Why? Why, 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 why are we going through this? And they they get the, the feel that this is what Job needs the most. He needs to know an answer as to why this is happening. And here's what his friends illustrate when you read the whole story. They don't answer it properly. They screw up that answer totally. You know why? Because they don't know God does. God has the answer to that problem, not his friends. And so they don't answer it uh, properly. They answer it the wrong way because it's in the mind of God alone. And it's a lesson to us that we don't know. I appreciate people asking why do bad things happen? What is going on? And I am always real hesitant to answer that question because I don't know why. I don't have the solutions. And then we're introduced to Elihu. Elihu comes in and he's super irritated with the friends because they've answered the question, why, totally wrong. And he's a little bit irritated with Job because Job has kind of turned the corner and he's justifying himself instead of God. And so Elihu, over several chapters, he comes and he lifts God up to Job. And he says, what you need in your suffering, what you need in your hardship, what you need in a difficult year is not why, we think we need why. Elihu reminds us that what you need is who. You need God, you need to worship, you need to lift him high. And so chapter after chapter, he lifts God up in the middle of trial and tribulation. And this is a great place for us to land on Christmas. Here's what Elihu says. At this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice. To the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes the lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. And here's verse six. He says to the snow, fall on the earth. To the rain shower, be a mighty downpour so that everyone uh, he has made may know his work. He stops all people from their labor. The animals, they take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber. The cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice. And the broad, broad waters become frozen." He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water his earth and to show his love. He hits on something that we can really understand here in the Midwest and and something we're familiar with here in Illinois. Snow and beyond snow, ice. Um, my first Christmas here was one of the worst ice storms that I have ever lived through, right? Uh, we came in 2006. Some of you remember that ice storm and I, I will never forget it because it's like some welcome party for me and my family, right? It was unbelievable, but he says, man, snow, you know what it does next time you see snowfall? Hopefully like February, whatever. Um, I really hope it's not this week. I swear to you, I hope it's not this week because it's not in the forecast right now, and I will be blamed. But (laughs) snow reminds us of his power. And power motivates us to worship. I want you to think about the power and ability that God has to blanket every square inch of the countryside with snow. Several years ago, we were talking about snow in a series. And uh, we got our hands on a snow machine uh, to use in our worship service. And it took four or five of us smart, intelligent people, multiple weeks to figure out how to make it snow on this very small stage. Think about our God who can cover the mountains, who can cover the Midwest with eight inches of snow, a God who can cause work and industry and school to stop, to stop people from their labor with a single storm. For you kids in February, when they're forecasting five inches of snow the next day, and you're going to bed that night, and you're like, I've got a chemistry test tomorrow. I am not prepared. If there is a God in heaven, may there be a snow day tomorrow. Please, 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 please. You are praying to the exact right person. Your parents can't do that. Right? Your parents can't make it snow. Your pastor can't make it snow. You can't make it snow. You are praying to the exact right person when you pray to God. He's the only one that can make that happen. And on one hand, the story of Job is this God of snow, that this power that God has, it is meant to give us hope when you consider the world around you, and more specifically your world, that God is all-powerful. God is powerful enough to blanket the entire state of Illinois with five inches of snow. A God who is this powerful, as a theology, that should give you hope. That when we're going through difficult times, he has not lost control. He has not vacated his throne. He's allowing things to happen for a reason that only he knows. And the greatest thing we can do with this God of snow, this God who's all-powerful, is continue to trust him. It's all we have. To continue to worship him. It's all we have. And it also gives us a hope, knowing that in him, this God of snow who can blanket the earth, that he can change our circumstances in a moment. He's powerful enough to do that. That he can change our circumstances in a moment, and we hope in that. I think this power sometimes, we're going to talk about this more next Sunday, but I think this power sometimes causes us to wonder, doesn't it? How will this powerful God move in my situation? What is he going to do in the new year in my health situation? What is he going to do in the new year in my job situation? What is he going to do in this family situation? He is a God of power. He is good, holy, righteous, and all powerful. He can cover the landscape with eight inches of snow. What will he do in my situation? It causes us to wonder. And that wonder is a good thing. It also gives us hope to know that the promise of Scripture is that if he doesn't change your circumstances in the new year, in the immediate That this powerful God will give you some of his power to endure any challenge. The Apostle Paul said it this way. His power is made perfect in my weakness. That should give you hope. Paul also said, I am hard pressed on every side, but not destroyed. How can Paul say this? Because he understood the same God that can blanket the countryside with snow, this same God that can change his circumstances in a moment. If Paul's circumstances did not change, he knew that God's power was available to him. And he said, I can continue to endure, I can can continue to walk in faithfulness, I can continue to worship because of his power made perfect in my weakness. So on one hand, I think we wonder, what will he do in my circumstances? That's the point of Job. It's not the only verse about snow, though. I think we consider our powerful God that blankets the world in snow. I think there is a deeper, more eternal question that we sometimes ponder when we consider God's power. Is we wonder, what will this powerful and majestic God do about our sin? What will he do in my circumstances? A good thing to wonder about, especially as we approach the new year. We'll talk about it more next Sunday. But what will this powerful God, who can blanket the entire landscape with eight inches of snow, what will he do about our sin, about our national sin, about our personal sin? Because we know he is holy, he is righteous, he is also powerful. He must deal with sin. It's in his nature. What will he do? This is the theme of Isaiah 1. When you read Isaiah 1, there's an entire kind of several verses there that are entitled in your Bible, A Rebellious Nation. And Isaiah goes by, verse by verse, chapter after chapter, and he is naming and identifying Israel's national sins. How they were bowing at the altars of other gods, how they were hurting the oppressed, how they weren't seeking justice for the downtrodden. And according to Isaiah 1, their sins were many And if I'm honest, as we approach the new year, I think it would be pretty easy to sit down and write that narrative about our nation, wouldn't it? To begin to list some of our national sins. God, would you forgive us for introducing our children younger and younger to sexual content? God, would you forgive us for failing to protect the most vulnerable in our nation, the unborn? God, would you forgive us for the racism that exists in our land and in our hearts and in our minds? God, would you forgive us for our greed as a nation and how we've turned our back on the oppressed? And we could go on and on and on and point out every national sin that there is, but if I'm honest, I could stand up here today. I'm not going to do this. I could stand up here today and I could confess to you many personal sins that I have as well. It is easy for me to point my finger at our nation. It is harder for me to look in the mirror, but I could do that just as easily. And I could name sin after sin after sin. And the question of scripture, how will this powerful God deal with this? Sin. And after 17 verses of pointing out sin, in verse 18, we come to this. Isaiah 1:18. come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. The very first verse tells us God desires, he has to settle the matter of our sin. His holiness demands it. And the question becomes, how is this holy, powerful, uh, incredible God going to deal with national sin? How is he going to deal with personal sin? What is his message going to be to humanity? Will it be try harder? That I am holy, I am perfect, I am righteous. You need to become more like me in your own power and your own strength. Is God's message to us try harder? I think a lot of people feel that it is. That God's message to the world was try harder. And so they spend a lot of their time trying to be more good than bad trying to spend uh, their life earning God's love. They make him into almost a cosmic, eternal Santa Claus. I'm like, man, I want to be on the nice list, not the naughty list. And I want to earn his love. I remember visiting a woman on her deathbed, and she said to me, she confessed to me, I am afraid to die, because I'm afraid I haven't done enough good things, and you need to know that is not how God deals with your sin. The good news of the gospel is not, would you please try harder this year? It is God's message to us is the way he deals with our sin, when one of anger, where he has turned our back on us and he says, your sins are deserving of death and death is exactly what you're going to get. Death is what is going to happen. And a lot of people have that view of God, that God is just cosmically angry with us and he's turned his back on humanity and he is just itching for a good smoting. A lot of people have this view of God and you need to know the gospel message is not that we need to live in constant fear of God and run away from him here's the good news the good news is that God in his power could have buried us because of our sin but instead this God of snow chose to bury our sin through his son Jesus could have buried us could have destroyed us, could have turned his back on us. Instead, he chose to bury our sin. It's the story of Christmas. Linus said it best when he quoted this text. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Canerius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married with him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the flocks nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified." But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in uh, in cloths and lying in a manger. How did this God of snow leverage his incredible power? When he saw the world and their sin... And he saw the world separated from him. And he said, as a powerful God, I'm going to do something about this. And his message wasn't try harder. And his message wasn't one of anger that I'm going to turn my back on you. How did he leverage his power to deal with our sin? He became a baby. Who became a man. Who was killed on a cross. And like a beautiful snow covers the countryside, he did that so our, our sins could be covered by his grace. And our sins, although like scarlet, we could be seen by God as being white as snow, not because of our righteousness, but because of his. See, the good news of Christmas is that that you need to live a perfect life. The good news is that Jesus lived a perfect life and through him, you can have a relationship with with God in this life and the next. The good news of Christmas is not you need to pay for your sins by death and separation from God. The good news is that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That Jesus paid for your sins and he paid for mine. So he experienced the death. He experienced the separation. He experienced all of that so that we could know, worship, follow, and honor God. He paid the price. The good news of Christmas is that today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is your Messiah. He is your Savior. He is your friend. That's the good news of Christmas. So that you and I can have what we were created to have all along, a relationship with our God, so the good news is not try harder. The good news is empowered by your powerful God. He will begin to change you from the inside out. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, this kind of, though our sins are as crimson, they are washed white as snow, this is a kind of cool theology called substitutionary atonement. It's core to the, the, to the Christmas message. It goes all the way back to the book of Exodus when God had been imploring Pharaoh to let his people go and Pharaoh is refusing to let his people go. And finally, God says, listen, there's going to be a plague of the firstborn and every firstborn male in Egypt will die from the donkey to Pharaoh's son. They will all die if you don't let my people go. And he does something amazing. Because there were a lot of Jewish, a lot of his people living in Egypt at the time. And he went to them and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb. And I want you to sacrifice that lamb. And I want you to put some of the blood of that lamb on the doorframe of your house. And I will allow that lamb to be a substitute for you. To be a substitute for the firstborn in your house. So it will pass over your house. That death sentence will pass over your house. And years and years and years later, Jesus was walking through the countryside, just kind of strolling along. And his cousin John is preaching a sermon to to the people. And his cousin stops in the middle of the sermon and he sees Jesus. And he points out to the crowd, he says, look. He doesn't say, hey, cuz. He doesn't say, hey, friend. He says, look, everyone, over there. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what he was saying in that moment is that Jesus is our perfect lamb. He is our substitute. He pays for our sins. And this is how though our sins are like scarlet, they can be made white as snow. He covers them like a beautiful countryside covered with snow. He covers over our sin so that we could be forgiven. And it is the good news of Christmas. For God so loved the world God so loved you and God so loved me that he sent his one and only son to die for our sin so that whoever believes in him shall not perish. No more death sentence, shall not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son as a baby. How did he leverage his power? He became a baby to die for our sin, to bury them and and eventually put them to death. So for the person here, And you're here today and you're living in the shame of the past. You've got this sin that just keeps coming back to you in your memory. Like, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. What on earth was I thinking? For the person here living in shame, here's what I want to say to you today Would you let it snow? In Jesus, you are forgiven. For the person here today that you are living in a fear of God, you just believe he is ready to smote you. You've actually made comments about, man, if I come to your church, that that something bad's going to happen. The walls are going to cave in or the the roof's going to cave in, whatever. And and you are here, you are living in fear of God. Here's what I want to say to you. Would you let it snow and receive his mercy and his grace and come to him? For the person that is struggling to celebrate this year, COVID, family, Medical drama, whatever, and you're like, I am just not feeling it this year. Would you let it snow? His love and his grace is worth celebrating. And to the person here that you feel stuck in a sin, and you've tried to defeat it and you've tried different things, and you just feel stuck. Would you let it snow? And understand that part of the gospel is that his overcoming grace is available to you. In Christ, you can overcome. The gospel is not try harder. The gospel is not, I'm going to smote you all. I'm done with humanity. The gospel is, in Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, we are washed white as snow. And in Christ, we can overcome. Let's, Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. And I just want to pray over the next few minutes as we remember communion, as we remember your death, that that you came uh, as a baby. That's how you leveraged your power. I'm going to become a baby who will become a man who will eventually receive the death penalty. As we remember it, would we just kind of in this room right now let it snow? and marvel in your grace, and marvel in your love, and marvel in your forgiveness, and understand that because of you, our sins are no longer like crimson. They have been washed, and they are now white as snow. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're gonna receive communion together right now. We'll pass the emblems and it's just an opportunity for you to remember that this baby that we celebrate at Christmas became a man who went to the cross to die for our sins so that we could be washed white as snow. And I just want to encourage you to spend some time with Jesus and thank him for what he accomplished and just let it snow. Let it snow and receive his grace and receive his mercy and receive his power. And then I'll come back up. You can just hold on to those emblems. I'll come back up in just a moment and we'll receive them. Uh, together as a church family his body given for you his blood poured out my prayer is that we would leave this place uh, spiritually speaking having let it snow that we would marvel in his grace and his mercy and his love for us understanding that in Christ though our sins are like crimson they've been made white as snow and that is an amazing promise because what it means is that we are free and able to have the relationship with God we were created to have and that's an amazing thing you are forgiven in Christ you are loved, you are empowered Merry Christmas next couple services will be uh, kind of simple services that are a couple of my favorite of the year um, uh, uh, Christmas Eve is just a great time if you're in town uh, gather up your family. It's an all-family service. Um, we, bring, you, we usually bring our kids in pajamas, uh, and they come, and uh, we're able to um, remember what Christmas is all about uh, at 7 o'clock that night on Christmas Eve. Uh, and then the 26th, um, we'll, we'll have a, a service that Sunday and uh, just kind of a simple um, retelling of the story. And um, we're, we're going to talk about hope that day, uh, the difference um, between uh, hope and confidence that we're able to kind of hope in whatever. But in in terms of confidence, we want to have confidence in God's promises. So we're going to talk about that on the 26th in relation to the Christmas story. And then uh, January 2nd, uh, Scott and I will be on the stage and we're going to have a conversation uh, that we planned out a few days ago, uh, Reflections on uh, 2021. Uh, And so we'll kind of talk about what we've learned uh, spiritually and uh, what we still want to learn. Uh, And then uh, after that, we will be in until Easter in our next chapter of the Genesis series. Uh, we'll be studying the life of Jacob uh, together uh, as we're kind of working our way through Genesis. So go ahead and stand up. Uh, really glad that you're here. Merry Christmas. We're gonna close with one last song of worship. Uh, if I don't see you at Christmas Eve or next Sunday, I, really, I hope your Christmas is great. Uh, let it snow. God bless.